Lord Jesus, we thank you for your mercy that is new every morning for us. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for your word, that you are a God who speaks. We pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to you now and open your word to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We are in our Death to Selfie series this Lent. It's our sermon series, uh, kind of, you know, dying to self, dying to selfie, trying to contemporize things, you know. Um, And we are looking at the different isms, the different isms that we as people often use to cope with our brokenness, uh, to cope with the brokenness of the world around us. And all of us, uh, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that things are not the way they should be. All right, things are not as they should be. We all have experiences that tell us this, uh, often from a very, very early age, that we learned that we're broken and that the world we live in is broken. I remember feeling this. Uh, I'm one of seven kids, and I am number five in that list, and I'm the first boy. So that means I have four older sisters. And I remember feeling the brokenness of the world (laughs) when my older sisters would go out to play. And like all younger siblings everywhere, all I wanted to do was go play with them, wherever they were. It was, you know, my world was kind of like revolving around whatever they were doing. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. But they didn't want me to tag along, you know, the annoying brother. And uh, they didn't want me messing up their games and stuff like that. So I had to stay back near the house where my mom could see me uh, while uh, they went off to play. I was not included. And that hurt. It was one of my earliest experiences of brokenness of this world, and it led to one of my earliest experiences of my own brokenness. And uh, that was that my sisters had these pet caterpillars, all right, that they had found in the garden. And they were like moths, I think, because they were the big kind, like big, green, ugly things. And uh, they had these caterpillars, and they all had one for themselves, and they all called them Lisa. So they were all their Lisas. Right? So these are their leases. And um, I, uh, as I said, I was excluded, you know, and I was hurt by not being able to play with them. And I wanted, you know, to get back at them. And uh, one, of, one of the things that they say in recovery rooms uh, is that hurt people hurt people. So that was me at four. Hurt people hurt people. And uh, my prized possession at four years old was a sweet Knight Rider big wheel. Anybody? (laughs) Michael Knight? All right. Uh, Michael Knight, one of my heroes. Anyhow, uh, I had this Knight Rider big wheel, and you can see where my four-year-old brain's starting to go. I'm not proud of it, but I remember putting all the leases on the driveway, (laughs) and and I remember thinking this was a good idea, and my Knight Rider big wheel brought an end to the leases. And uh, Michael Knight would be ashamed of me, I have to say. Oh, dear. But anyhow, I still feel bad when I think about those caterpillars. And uh, they were the collateral damage in the ongoing battle between me and my older sisters. And my sisters were obviously devastated. I, I certainly had gotten back at them. But it didn't solve anything. I didn't actually feel better, and they certainly didn't want to play with me anymore. So uh, I was very little, though. And I knew the pain caused by others, and I knew the pain that I had caused others. 
I was completely aware of this at four years old. Brokenness. We don't like it, and we actually can't really handle it. If we're honest, we know that despite our best efforts, we can't stop ourselves or others from hurting, from hurting each other. We can't prevent the brokenness, but this doesn't stop us from trying, right? We try a lot, and it turns into ways of coping. We try to cope with this brokenness. We try to take control, and it turns into some sort of ism, all right? We try to take control of the hurt, and it turns into things like narcissism. We talked about this series, perfectionism, escapism, and this week is voyeurism. Now, voyeurism is usually defined as particularly having to do with sex, uh, being a peeping Tom or something like that. Uh, that's certainly included here, but it has broadened, it's broadened now in our culture. We derive pleasure and satisfaction from watching and observing people do lots of different things now. It's one of our pastimes. We have a whole new category of celebrity with the social media star, right? People who are just stars because they have stuff on social media all the time and we watch their lives unfold in front of us. Think, think the Kardashians, right? I mean, they were pioneers in this new world, this new social media culture where they basically made themselves objects for our entertainment. And we get to look in on their lives from the safety and secrecy of our TVs and from our phones and just watch them, you know? It's the tabloid, tabloid world gone mainstream. And they've, they've become millionaires multiple times over. You know, they're not upset about this. They feed off of this. And um, <clears throat> there are companies that will pay them tons of money because they know they've got all these people that follow them. They have tons of exposure. Their brands will get out there. It's all over the place. It's the new version of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. You guys remember that show? I used to love that show. And then Cribs, it became Cribs. And now you just have to go on your Instagram and follow, you know, Kylie Jenner. But uh, we're peering into their lives and we're seeing all that we don't have when we look at them. It's really built off of our addiction to comparison. And that's really what we're talking about when we talk about voyeurism. We're just talking about comparison. It's, it's where this all leads. You know, the Kardashians may not be your particular cup of tea, or at least you would never admit that they were, even under like the threat of torture, but maybe it's your friend. You know, maybe you have a friend that you stalk on, on social media. You just always have to check and see what they're doing. You have to see, you know, what they're up to, what they're wearing, where they're going, these types of things. They just look like they have the perfect life, right? Or maybe it's your neighbor who just renovated their house and they had the, just the greatest interior designer, and now their decor is perfect, and man, you want it. You know? We can do it with anything. And it's nothing new, where we find something to compare ourselves to, something to find uh, something that we need or want that we don't have. In the Ten Commandments, I say it's nothing new. In the Ten Commandments, it's referred to as covetousness. And this is what the commandment says. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox. Read his car, his Tesla, or his donkey, which is his motorcycle, you know, or anything that is your neighbor's. You shall not covet any of these things. And in our lingo today, we would say, you shall not, you know, you shall not envy, you shall not compare yourself to others. And yet, we hear this command... But we see it all over the Bible. 
all over. The psalmists, if you read through the psalms, you will hear them struggle with comparison often with their enemies. They'll talk often over and over again about how their enemies are prospering and they aren't. And they're crying out to God, how long? How long till you deliver us? We hear Jesus talk about comparison and what it leads to. And we hear Paul, when Paul's teaching in Romans, he uses coveting as his primary illustration of how the law works in Romans 7. He said, before I knew the law, thou shalt not covet. I didn't know what coveting was. But when the law came, all sorts of covetousness rose up within me. Covetousness or comparison is a major issue for humanity. It's something that one of my favorite bands sings. I've quoted this before, but Waterdeep sings, I am haunted by my love for comparison, my fascination with this single common theme. We have a love for it. And David, as we read today, is a perfect case in point, all right? And with him, it is more classic voyeurism because it does have to do with sex. But David, as you know, is the king of Israel, okay? And he has everything anyone could possibly want. He has wealth, he has power, he has the adoration of all of his people. And very important for our story today, which is a little odd, sorry parents, we can talk about it afterwards, you're gonna have to explain this to your kids. He had six wives already. David had six wives, that's right, six. First, uh, First Chronicles 3 tells us that David was married to Ahinoam, Abigail, I'm not going to get these all right. Maka, Haggith, Abital, and Eglah. Those are all the top ten names now. Top six names for all babies this next year. But um, he had six wives. And one day, he was walking along the roof of his palace. And he was not at war where he should have been. And he could see into the window of a nearby house. And he saw a beautiful woman bathing. And her name was Bathsheba. He, had, he already had everything, right? And he had five more spouses than most people, okay? And uh, not to mention others. But anyhow, uh, we won't get into that. He saw then this woman, Bathsheba, and he did not have her. Clearly having more than one wife was not a problem for David. But there was a problem. She was already married to somebody else. She was married to Uriah, one of his soldiers, you can almost hear it if it were like a movie. You can hear Rick Springfield from 1981 start to fade in, right? I wish I had Uriah's girl. You guys know that song? You can hear it. Why can't I find a woman like that? And um, this is starting to rise up. David wanted her. He wanted more than what he had. And he had the power to get her. And the language is very clear when what Alan read. It says he took her. He took her for himself totally disregarding her as a person and her life and her desires. But that's often what sin does, doesn't it? I mean, this is where sin leads us. It promises one thing, and then it brings about the complete opposite, right? He thought this was going to be great, you know, intimacy, wonderful things, and it actually brought about destruction. So David takes her, and he gets her pregnant, which he then tries to cover up by bringing Uriah home from battle, where David should have been, as we said, leading his men instead of being at home with their wives. He wanted Uriah then to come home and to go home and be with Bathsheba to try to cover it up. 
But Uriah is a man full of honor, unlike David here, and he doesn't do it. He doesn't cooperate. He won't go home to be with his wife because he says, all of my friends and fellow soldiers are sleeping in tents. They're in the battlefield. Why should I go home and be comfortable when they're all suffering? I'm going to not do that. And so David sends him back to the front, carrying his own death warrant. He's carrying a message for the commander Joab to put Uriah out on the front lines and then to pull back the other troops so that he is exposed and gets killed. And David's evil plan works. And after an an appropriate amount of mourning for Bathsheba, David then takes her as his wife. You know, what an honorable guy. But this shows you what kind of trouble our love for comparison gets us into. It's often a downward spiral, just like it was for David. Comparison, it's still us dealing with our crisis of identity. It's still us dealing with our insecurity. I don't feel secure. I don't feel safe. So I need to find that safety in something or someone else. I begin to compare myself with those around me. How do I match up? How do I compare? You know, I evaluate my life against what I see in their lives. Do they look secure to me? I go on Facebook or I go on Instagram or whatever it is, and I see all their smiling selfies, and I think to myself, man, they look happy, they look safe, they look secure. I need what they have. I want to try to get it. So I'm going to go try to find what they've got. And with David, you might argue that it was just lust driving the ship. And was he really comparing his life to Uriah? Well, he wasn't explicitly, but what's the promise behind all of our lust? What's the promise behind our desires? If I just had that person, then I'd be good. If I just was with her, then I'd be fine. If I was just with him, then things would be good. You know, then I'd have satisfaction. That's what's behind all of it. There's this promise of bliss and joy and peace, safety, love, security, satisfaction. It's all in there. We often don't think through that consciously, but it's, it's the emotional payoff that we're really going for. Contentment, it's what we want. The problem is, as I said a second ago, comparison never results in more freedom. It doesn't give you what it promises. And another famous musician, not Rick Springfield this time, but Mick Jagger, we all know this one, He sang about it very clearly. I can't get no satisfaction, right? No, no, no. And it's not for lack of effort. Do you remember what he sings in the song? I try, and I try, and I try, and I try. And I can't get no satisfaction. Comparison doesn't actually give us the security that we hope it does. It's truly an insatiable thing. It's not like I find that one person that's just worse at me than every, in every category, you know? I just gotta find that one person that I'm better at in everything. I've not found them yet, but it's not like if I did find them, I would be contented and I'd never compare myself to anybody again. It doesn't work that way. I just find someone else and I start the whole process over again because there's always someone out there that you envy. There's always one more thing. You know, happiness is just one more purchase away. That's the promise that we think is there, but we never get satisfied. Now, I could tell you simply, don't be like David, you know, as if you didn't know that. I could turn this whole thing into a message about sin management. 
I could turn this all into behavioralism, and then we'd just be back in an ism again, right where we started. I could tell you to stop using social media. I could tell you to stop following the Kardashians even secretly, (laughs) which I know you all do. Just kidding. Um, Clearly, I do. Anyhow, um, I could tell you to stop these things, and depending on your situation, that might be a good idea for you, you know, if if it's bordering on addiction. But the truth is that none of that would actually stop your problem. None of it would actually stop your real issue with comparison. You know, it wouldn't actually deal with the root issue of covetousness, as we heard. The law has already told all of us very clearly, coveting is not good. It doesn't get you what you want. And yet, you do it. We all do it. The law might help restrain some of our sin in our lives because that's the best that it can do. It exposes our sin for what it is, and then it just restrains it so that we're not as bad as we possibly could be. That's really what the law does, because we're afraid of being caught. So it just restrains it a little bit, but it actually doesn't produce righteousness in us. It doesn't produce goodness. It can't actually do that for you. It cannot and does not make you free from sin. It doesn't, the law does not produce what it demands. It doesn't have that power. It was never intended to have that power. It was always intended to show us the problem, but it cannot fix the problem. It leaves us with a question. Who will save me? Where's my hope? And this is what Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, No law, be it ever so divine and holy, can show me how I should be delivered from sin. Here I must take the counsel of the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel, which teaches me not what I ought to do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me, which teaches me that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. And the gospel wills me to receive this and to believe it. This is the crazy thing. The crazy thing is that God actually redeems our love for comparison. He redeems it. He redeems our brokenness. This is the good news for me as that four-year-old boy sitting there in the driveway looking at what I had just done. I was instantly full of regret for that. That God redeems the ways we hurt Others, and he redeems the ways that we are hurt by others. And this is the good news for David. Very specifically, God brings his true king, Jesus, from the line of David and Bathsheba. Jesus is one of Bathsheba's descendants. And what does this king Jesus do? He doesn't do what David does, he does take something of ours. But it's not like David stealing Bathsheba from Uriah. Jesus takes our sin from us. He takes the thing that is destroying us. He doesn't send us to our death like David sent Uriah to his. Rather, he goes to his own death for us. He lays down his life for his sheep. All that we lose to Jesus is what was killing us in the first place. It was just the stuff that was hurting us in the first place. That's what he takes, all of our brokenness, and he gives us himself. We gain everything. Jesus kills our love for comparison. 
He loves us apart from our performance. He loves us apart from how much or how we match up. He loves us apart from how we compare. He does this amazing thing for us. It's the same thing he did for David. He forgives. He forgives us. He loves us uniquely in that he loves us for us, just as we are. No qualifications, no conditions. And when you hear that kind of love in your life, when you hear this, and it's not a pipe dream, I'm telling you, I'm testifying to you about this, it is true. When you hear that that kind of love exists, when you hear that that forgiveness is yours, then your need for comparison just fades away. It starts to die. It doesn't have anywhere to stand. There's no more need to measure yourself against anything or anyone because you're completely loved and accepted by somebody. And not just anybody, but by God himself. This is the secret that Paul talked about in Philippians 4 in our passage. The secret to all contentment. This is what he knew. This is the secret that he had found. It's the fact that Jesus Christ has cleared away all of the areas in your life where you were found wanting. And he's done it through his own blood. He's done it so it is free for you. You are forgiven. You are loved just as you are because of Jesus Christ, which that then means you are secure and you are safe. And those are the words of freedom, those and those alone. I want you to hear them today. They are Jesus' words to you. He is your security. He is your safety. He is your freedom. You can rest in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. I thank you that you are more powerful than anything we might do. That you can take the disasters that we create, just like David did, and just like I did as a four-year-old. You can take the things where we have actually hurt and destroyed life, and you can redeem it that you have actually come to bring new life, to bring resurrection. We ask that you would keep this firmly fixed in our hearts and our minds this week. And Lord, that you would use us to share this good news with others, to share this news with people that are hurting and that find themselves hurting others. I pray, Lord, that this grace would change our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.